Welcome into Other People's Shoes. As you know, I'm your host, Neil Matthews. Thank you so much for joining me today. Help me out. If you are appearing out there, raise your hand right now. Just go ahead and do it. It's fine. Nobody, nobody will know that you're doing it because a guy on a podcast told you to do it. I'll give you a minute. Go ahead and do that. Okay, I'm assuming you're doing that. How many of us remember when our little ones turned one years old, maybe even two years old, and we put the cake in front of them? We remember that, snapping the Kodak, snapping the iPhone pictures, doing all kinds of stuff. And what would happen inevitably when we got the cake in front of the little one? That's right, they would shove it in their face. And so in honor of that, Other People's Shoes is turning two years old Super excited about that. So I just thought, what a better way to reenact such a monumental moment in our toddler's life than to have cake shoved in my face. Some have even called me a toddler at times. And so with that being said, I asked my daughter, who is amazing, to come up with a number. And her number is 35. I, I kind of helped a little bit, I will, uh, full disclosure, but the number is 35. And so what 35 means to you, you the listener, is if we can get 35 brand new rankings of the show. So in other words, 35 people come out, rank the show. I, on January 29th, which is a Friday, last Friday of January, I will have a cake shoved in my face from my daughter. So if you'd like to participate in that, super simple, check out our website, opspodcast.com. Look under the tab that says rank the show. Super easy to do. Rank the show right then and there. If we get 35 people to come out and rank the show, my daughter will shove cake in my face. So be a part of that. January 29th, we'll be doing a Facebook, Instagram live. You don't want to miss out on that. And without further ado, here is the show. Welcome into other people's shoes. As you know, I'm your host, Neil Matthews. Thank you so much for joining us today. I just have to tell you before we get into today's episode, we are going to be talking about a very mature subject. So listener discretion is advised. This is, of course, of adult nature. We are talking about sexual abuse and things of that nature. So if you are trigger sensitive to that, I do caution you as you listen into this episode. With that said, help me welcome in my guest, Sandy Philip Kirkham. She is, of course, the author of Let Me Pray Upon You. And let me tell you right now, this is a book you want to get your hands on right now. In fact, I myself have a copy of the book and I'm looking forward to finishing the book fairly soon because her story is so powerful, so impacting. And let me tell you right now, you're going to want to listen in to what happened to her and her trauma how she didn't stay in her trauma, how she kind of came out of that and the result of that. So help me welcome in my guest from the great state of Ohio, Sandy Phillip Kirkham. I'm glad to be here and be a part of your show today. Well, thank you so much. So Sandy, uh, getting into your story, before we get too far down that road, I, I do have to ask this. I, I know you've been on a number of shows talking about the the book and your story. And by the way, I cannot wait till we get into that. So just hold on to that tightly because we're going to be there before we know it. 
But before we go too far, I got to ask this very important question to you. Are you ready? Here it is. Yeah. Sandy, what style of shoe do you love to wear? High heels. High heels. Okay. I'm a high heels girl. All right. You are a high heels girl. And is there a certain style or brand? This tells you how much I know about high heels. I don't even know. Yeah, is there um, such a thing? Mostly pumps. Um, but anything with a heel on it, I, I like walking around in heels. I have a pair on right now. <laughs> Nice. All right. Well, you know, in full disclosure, I'm wearing my, I don't know if you know basketball or sports at all, but I'm wearing these Adidas called uh, Kobe Ones. Yes. And uh-huh. So Kobe Bryant actually back in the day was with Adidas. And so this is the second line of shoes that he wore with Adidas. So I don't know. I just put those on today. There's a lot to choose from in my wardrobe, much like yours, <laughs> right? Yes. I have a lot of shoes. Yeah, so that's where it comes from, right? Because if we're going to be in your shoes today, we got to know what we're wearing. So that's kind of the the reason for that question. So so getting into this, I'm fascinated by your story. And I'm also very heartbroken by your story. Because I think for me, when I think of your story, I cannot help but put my daughter into your story, if that makes Mm -hmm. sense. And I'll, I'll kind of help with that. So when I'm talking about that, my daughter's 13 years old. Your encounter happens like two years from now. Hey, I see you. There you are. Oh, yeah. Yeah. So, so my daughter's 13 years old. Your, your, um, your first encounter with this gentleman that, that makes up part of your story happens when? Uh, he, we, let's see, he was hired, uh, by our church in 16. He was a new youth pastor that was hired and I just turned 16. Okay. So my daughter's 13. So three years from now, my daughter basically encounters a man like you mm-hmm. encountered, um, who then takes her on a path. And, and to me, like I said, as a father, I, I cannot help but be angry at this gentleman. I can't help right. but be a little perturbed. Um, and, and I want to get into this story. So help us for those that don't know what happened that, that kind of changed you uh, and, and what happened with your story. Well, interestingly, your daughter's 13 because I was baptized at age 13. And at that point, from that point on, I was very dedicated to my life in the church. I was very excited to be a part of the body of Christ. And, you know, I have to say, if someone had told me at 13, three years later, I would meet this man who would forever alter my life and change it in such a dramatic way, I, I would have never believed them. Um he basically came and, and took away from me and took a part of my life that was very sacred and, as I said, changed it forever. Um, he was a very charismatic and dynamic kind of personality. Um, everyone was really excited to have him on board and have him on staff. He brought new ideas. He was just a, a very charismatic person who had people that were just drawn to him. And since I was very active in the church, it was no surprise that he kind of tapped into me early on to be one of the leaders. And of course I was happy to do that because I saw that as my role, that that was my purpose in life was to serve God and serve the church in any way that I could. You know, I'm, I'm thinking back to this, by the way, could you help us if you're, if you're willing, you don't have to, Mm -hmm. but, but help us with what year is this kind of taking place in? Um, I was 16. This would have been in 1971. Okay. So that's, to me, that's kind of important by the way. And I'll tell you mm-hmm. why, because I'm also thinking about 
in the 70s era, 60s, 70s era, there's a guy out in California, maybe you've heard of this guy, Jim Jones. Mm-hmm. And as you're describing your, the gentleman that, that does some things, and we're going to get into to that momentarily, but as you're describing him and what he did and the process and the grooming and all of that that takes place, I cannot help but think about Jim Jones. I cannot help but think about the charismaticness that Jim Jones, I, I obviously I never met him. It's, it's, it's also not just being charismatic, but their ability to tap into people who have vulnerabilities and needs. So with Jim Jones, this, these, they were mostly black African-Americans who were poor, who had a lot of issues in their lives, who came to this church and found a safe place. So they thought, and this man, Jim Jones, then, was meeting a need for them and and met them emotionally. And he would then eventually convince them that, you know, he could be trusted so much that they would follow him. And and that's one of the important things when we need to understand about abuse, whether it's clergy abuse or not, there isn't a trust that's established so deeply that the victim will almost do anything that the perpetrator asked them to do. Um, and so, and it's a slow methodical, it's not just overnight, they spend a lot of time with the grooming and establishing the trust, and then they meet these emotional needs of the vulnerable people. And, and, and sexual abuse victims aren't chosen by random, they're targeted. Uh, perpetrators look for the weak, they look for someone who has low self-esteem, they look for someone who perhaps has had past sexual abuse. And so that they're so needy that when this person comes along that they think they should be able to trust, they're almost willing then to do almost anything that this perpetrator asked them to do. And, and I guess that's why I make that parallel. Obviously Mm -hmm. I never met Jim Jones. He, you know, he and his, his, uh, people's church, you know, they're down in Ghana and you know, we all know that story. And if you don't, well, you probably need to go look into that. But the, I mean, think about there was 900 people that were willing to die for this man. 900 people. And I, you know, and I can remember people saying, why would anybody do that? But when you're caught in the traps of these men who are so clever at what they do, you lose all sense of your own judgment and they become uh, the person who controls you enough that you're willing to do almost anything for them. Well, and, and as I said, that's, that to me is what resonated with me when I was hearing your story uh, on the, on the number of shows that you've been on is I kept thinking that that's, it sounds so similar. I mean, I can even think of some people may even think of cult leaders such as a Joseph Smith mm-hmm. or, or other people like that who are in a manipulative role who then take their power of influence and they use it obviously wrongly to then mm-hmm. perpetrate and, and commit crimes and do all kinds of other stuff. And, and to me, I know this sounds weird perhaps to some, but that to me is very fascinating because I think to myself, how how could someone do that to someone else? But also, how how can someone allow that to happen? So maybe speak to that if you wouldn't mind. Because some people may say, well, you were just a naive kid. He just, you know, he, he, what, what do you say to that? Well, I think you need to understand that it's a process that starts. You know, first it's this grooming of, you know, telling me how wonderful I am and how much I'm helpful into the church and how much he needs me in the ministry. And so it it validates a person who's already maybe insecure, a person who has low self-esteem, which was kind of my case. I mean, my parents were divorced and I didn't see my dad much. So church was my place that I found this love and attention that I felt like I wasn't getting at home and missing my dad. So it starts there. And then it's a process 
process of just meeting those emotional needs to a point that you become dependent on the perpetrator long before it becomes sexual. You find yourself that you really depend on this person and then they start to seclude you. So then they, they start to say things like, well, let's just you and I spend some time together and you don't need to go see your friends or, you know, your parents probably don't understand you the way I do. So then the, the perpetrator is now secluding you to a point where you don't have a support system outside of what the abuser is telling you. So he's, he becomes really your, your world. Um, and then it, once they know they have that control, it's easy then to turn the relationship into a sexual relationship. And they maintain that sexual relationship by secrecy, by threats. You know, and in my case, it was guilt sometimes. You know, he would say, well, you know, if you, if you tell anyone about this, you're going to be responsible for what happens to the church. And if that, something happens to me and what's going to happen to this church, um, you know, no one's going to believe you. Uh, who would believe you over me? Uh, some victims have talked about threats that they'll say, the perpetrator will say things like, uh, I have the power to hurt your family. I know people who can hurt your family if you tell. So there's a lot of reasons why once the victim is sucked in, that they remain in that relationship. Now, my understanding is from your story that some time had passed. So this happens when you're, uh, again, just to help, uh, you're around mm-hmm. 16. The abuse goes on for roughly mm-hmm. about four years. Is that right? Four or five, five four, years. Oh, excuse mm-hmm. me, five years. So you're now, you know, almost you're in your 20s when it, yes, finally, 21. When it finally stops. So and it's it stops because he got caught. Um, and so that's what ended it. Because I tell people, you know, how, how did in he my get mind, caught? The, help me with that? Uh, two elders followed him one night and found him with me. Um, and so the where, two elders in the church were you, found if you don't him. Mind asking. It was in a hotel room. Oh, you were in um, a hotel room with him. Holy smokes. Yes. Okay. And it started out in the beginning. I babysat for them. I didn't have a driver's license. So it started uh, when I was babysitting for the family. His wife worked evenings. And that's once it became sexual, um, he quickly then, after I got a driver's license, he would have me meet him in hotel rooms. Um, and so we, we were at a hotel when two elders who were suspicious followed him one night. Um, now, after they discovered his actions, there was a discussion among the elders as to what they needed to do. And there was a vote taken whether they should keep him or not. It was decided he should be moved to the next church. He was given a going away party. They did not inform the congregation of what had happened. Uh, although some people started finding out through rumors and supposedly, I guess some elders told their wives and you know how that would go. So there were some people in the church who knew exactly why he was leaving, but most of the people did not. So he was given this party. He was moved to the next church. And then I was called in by the elders and told that because of my behavior, I was to leave the church. And um, I was devastated. I was absolutely devastated. I loved that church. I, I couldn't imagine that I was now being told by these men that I wasn't fit to worship there. So that ended it. Um, and for a couple of years, I wasn't just in a funk as to what to do. I didn't know. I didn't, I didn't have a church to go to. I felt like I was responsible for everything that had happened. I, I felt a lot of guilt. Um, and so for 27 years, I kept a secret from my husband. I didn't tell my friends and that secret really ate away at me for 27 years. I had many trigger factors throughout that time. Uh, church was extremely difficult for me to attend, but I couldn't let anyone know why I was having difficulty with church. So I pretended that everything was okay. Um, when in reality, I was having a lot of anxiety attacks. Um, 
anytime I walk past the minister's office, I got a knot in my stomach, not because of that particular minister, but that was the trigger factor that I had um, walking past his office. So for 27 years, I never told anyone. And I was always fearful someone would learn about what I had done. Because after all, how how bad do you have to be to be thrown out of a church? Um, And I certainly didn't want anyone to know that about me. So I want to go back to a couple of things. First one I want to go back to. That's horrific, by the way. Horrific that you had to walk mm-hmm. through that for 27 years. That's a lot of pain. It was. Um, that's a lot of stuff to carry. Wow. Mm-hmm. Um, how did those two elders find out? Do you know? Well, I think what happens, you know, with many perpetrators, they become emboldened by their actions. So they, they're in the beginning, they're very secretive. They're very, uh, careful about their actions. They don't, well, as time goes on and and because I believe this man was a narcissist, he began to believe that, you know, nothing could touch him and that this was not something anybody was ever going to suspect of him. And no matter what, what he did or said around me, people were not going to question him. Now, in fact, I had one youth group leader who did question him and his response was to her to become angry, tell her that, well, how dare she accuse him of something like that. And if she can't trust him, she needs to leave the church. So that was his, you know, he had such power. And so I think part of it was he felt like, no, no one's ever going to find out about this. Well, you know, there were signs along the way. People were questioning. I think his wife was getting suspicious. And so it just snowballed to a point that people decided maybe we better pursue this a little farther and see if there's not something going on. But I I never really knew because I was kind of kept in the dark. Uh, Once it all came out, uh, no one wanted to talk to me. No one gave me the only advice I was given or told what to do was where I was to sit in church, how I should behave. I should never tell anybody what happened, including my parents. Um, It was all in an effort to keep him safe and to keep him so that he could move to the next church. Gotcha. So, so these guys find you that night, these two elders find you. Mm -hmm. Do you remember Mm -hmm. what that was like when they came into the room? I mean, well, they didn't come into the room. They called from downstairs in the lobby. um, And I was absolutely petrified. I I didn't know what was going to happen. You know, all of a sudden it wasn't so much that I felt like he got caught. I felt like we got caught that I was now going to be exposed for something I had been doing. And I I remember just thinking if there was a way I could get out of the room, but which there wasn't. Um, And within about 20 minutes, he came back up to the room and said he was going to go back with the elders and that I wasn't to say anything to anyone and that they would be in contact with me. And their contact with me basically was again, not to tell anyone and that I was to make sure no one knew anything about what had just happened. Now he's the youth pastor. I grew up in, in a church setting, right? Mm-hmm. And so is there a senior pastor over him or is there somebody above There was him? when he was hired, um, but he was eventually promoted to the senior pastor. Okay. So when this um, finally was out in the open, he was the senior pastor at that time. Now, interestingly enough, just after he was hired at our church, a young woman from his first church came forward and accused him of sexually inappropriate behavior. So the elders confronted him. He didn't deny it. He said that it was true, but it was a mistake and that it would never happen again. And he begged for forgiveness. The elders and the senior pastor at the time decided that they would forgive him 
and that they would allow him to remain as our youth pastor and no information was given to the congregation. So this was not his first incident of sexual misconduct, which is common. Um, And when he was moved to the next church, uh, he then continued this sexual misconduct with a 20-something in his church in the next church as well. Wow. So, so there's just so many questions. I don't even know where to start. Right. I I feel like it's, you know, like I'm at in, 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 uh, back in the day when my mom would tell me to go clean my room and it was such a mess. Where do where do I start? Sorry to parallel your life to my bedroom cleaning ability just trying to bring i've seen my son's messy okay bedroom, fair so enough so as a mom a you can analogy. as a mom you can relate i was just it's also trying to bring some levity that's just me and my personality i try to bring levity that's okay but i'm thinking to myself i'm also a dad as i mentioned you know we, we talked about mm-hmm. my daughter but if i'm your dad like i hate this guy I, I, I'm not happy about this guy. I mean, Christian believer in Jesus, disciple of Jesus, whatever label slap you want to put on that. I'm angry that this has taken place. There was, I have to say some people in the church who had, I wouldn't say anger, but they weren't as accepting of his behavior and they weren't as forgiving, but there wasn't an outrage over what was done. Again, this was in 1971, so things were a little different and we didn't know about sexual abuse. People saw this as this poor pastor who made a mistake. There's this attractive young teenage girl that probably pursued him. That was kind of the narrative. So he wasn't blamed as much and it wasn't looked upon as sexual abuse in part because he told everyone that it had only been going on for a year. So in most people's minds, I'm around age 19 or 20 when this happens. And of course, being under his control and not wanting to make things worse, I didn't refute that. I I let it go. Um, My dad was sort of out of the picture, so he didn't know about this. My stepfather was angry. My mother, on the other hand, just wanted it to go away, which would be typical, I think, at well, that especially time. especially in 1970, yeah, for sure. Yeah, yeah now keep imagine. also in mind that these men not only groom the victim, and they're not only good at being uh, manip- manipulative with the victim, they groom the entire congregation. I mean, everyone loved this man. He really, like a Jim Jones, had them under his spell. And so the tendency to want to forgive him was greater than looking at what was really happening. And the tendency to want to say this was just a mistake and we shouldn't ruin his career over this was more important to them than actually looking at what was going on and what was happening. Yeah. I mean, there's, again, there's so much there. And keep the other thing I tell people too, is we have to remember that this man and these men, sometimes women, are beloved in our congregation. So they baptized our children. They performed our marriage ceremonies and they've sat with us at bedsides when our parents were dying. We have a personal connection with them. So there's a, it's, it's hard to discipline them and it's hard to take the stance that, you know, this was wrong what you did and you need to have consequences for it because of that personal relationship that we have with our pastors. It makes it a little more difficult. Not right, but it makes it more difficult. Well, being a mom yourself, right? I mean, think about this. Somehow we could go back in time. I don't know how, but we can. And and you can go back and you can talk to that 15-year-old girl, 13-year-old girl before this even happens, right? Enough time to give you time 
you know, it, I know it's space-time continuum and it's time travel, so it might get confusing. But let's say you could go back to you at 12 years old, right? Knowing what you know now, knowing what's going to happen in a couple of years to this younger you, right? I mean, what advice, what counsel would you have given her? I think the first thing I would tell her is good people can do bad things and, and not all good people or as they appear to be good people are. And so just because someone's your minister or someone's an adult over you, your teacher, while we can trust most of them, sometimes we can't. And if something doesn't seem right to you, then maybe it's not. And it's okay to question that person. So the first time he kissed me, it, it was after a youth group meeting. It was at my house. He waited for everyone to be alone. And he just very casually walked up to me and told me what a great night it was and how much he appreciated everything I had been doing for the church. I mean, I'm walking on cloud nine at this point because here's this wonderful pastor that everyone loves and everyone wanted his uh, attention. They wanted his encouragement. And so here he was personally telling me how wonderful I was. And he just gently bent down and he kissed me. And my first reaction was, there's something wrong. He, he, I think he just kissed me. And so, but it wasn't, it didn't seem quite right, but it didn't seem quite wrong. And it was my pastor. So in my 16 year old mind, it was this feeling that I shouldn't be judging this man. Maybe this is just his way of showing how much he appreciates me. And, and in my mind, if I went to that side that said, this man shouldn't be doing this. How could I accuse my pastor of something like that? So I just accepted it, that it was okay. So I think I'd tell that 12 and 13 year old girl, if it doesn't feel right, it, it, it may not be right. And it's okay to question that. And it's okay to say to someone, this is what happened last night in my home. He kissed me. What should I do with that? You know, there, there are those that would say, I'm not one of those, by the way, but I would think that there would be those that would say, okay, once is fun. You know, once we could, we could allow that, you know, you, you, you know, you succumb to his charm, his charisma, his, you know, his brainwashing, his grooming, all of that. But you're a smart lady. How could you allow yourself to happen again and again and again and again? What would you say to that? Well, you, you used all the words. I've been brainwashed, the vulnerabilities, the grooming. It, it's a slow, methodical, and it's, and, and again, they, he's met a need in my life. You know, I needed security. I needed uh, attention. He was giving that to me. And so when someone is in a vulnerable position who needs something, and then that person's emotionally uh, filling that need, um, you, you, the trust then becomes greater. And so you don't, want to question it because you don't want to lose that. Um, that's why they, you know, they establish the trust in order to draw you in and to pull you in. And once you're in that dependency has become greater for you. And again, this happened over a year. Sometimes he kissed me when we, when I was with him, sometimes he wouldn't, sometimes he hugged me, sometimes he wouldn't. There was never this constant. It was just a slow methodical type of behavior. And he was very, um, touchy and feely with everyone in the church. He hugged everyone, men and women. So I just saw it as an extension that, you know, he cared for me a little bit more and that the hugs lingered a little longer for me because he cared more for me. Um, and then once he had sex with me that first time, it was, it, it, it came out of the blue. I didn't expect it. And I froze. I, I just froze. I didn't know what to do. Um, I was scared. 
I was afraid to tell him no. He kept telling me how much he loved me, how much he cared for me, and that he'd never hurt me. So I remember just kind of blocking it out of my mind. I describe in the book that I just literally, I was on the floor in the living room and he kind of pushed me underneath an old stereo that was on four legs and I could see the serial numbers underneath. And so I started just reading the serial numbers. That's all I could think to do is just keep repeating the serial numbers over and over just to think of anything else besides what was happening to me at the moment. And then once he crossed that boundary of having sex with me. He made it very clear that no one should ever know. And if I were to tell anyone, I'd be responsible for what would happen and no one would believe me. And I I can remember thinking, I don't even believe this is happening to me. Why would anyone believe me? And I cared about him. So that's the other thing you have to think about. This isn't some stranger, somebody that I, this is somebody that I had established a relationship with and I cared about him. So I didn't want to hurt him. I didn't want to tell on him, so to speak. And I didn't want anyone to know that I had done this. I had just had sex with my pastor. And so I just felt like I was in a black hole. And this was just something I had to accept. And that he normalized the relationship by telling me this was God's will. He used scripture to tell me that he was like David in the Bible. And again, when you're in a vulnerable place and you're and you're so in need of, of, of this person's attention, you then accept that behavior. Um, it's 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 an emotional trapment that you have that that you're caught in and it's difficult to see your way out and you have to remember there's gaslighting involved gaslighting is when the perpetrator distorts your ability to see reality as it is they start to think for you so when you start to question it and there were times i did there were a couple times i went to him and i said this is not happening i can't do this anymore i feel guilty he would respond in one of two ways. One, he would tell me how much he needed me. He'd play the guilt trip and please don't leave me. And, and this ministry is working because of you. Or he'd become angry, tell me that I was worthless. I wasn't a virgin any longer. He would play on my low self-esteem and make me feel worthless. And I began to believe that there would be no one else who would love me like he did. That's why when people talk to women who are in abusive relationships, well, why don't they just leave? It's not that simple. They're in a trap. And by the very definition of a trap means there may be a way out, but the, but the prey doesn't see a way out. Doesn't, there might be a way out. Sure, I, people say, well, there's all kinds of people in the church you could have told at that time. I didn't see that. I saw this man who had control over me, who threatened me and played a guilt trip upon me to maintain and stay in that relationship. Okay. So your first encounter, your first sexual encounter with him, you were how old? 17. 17. Mm-hmm. He took about a year of that grooming of, right. you know, I was dating during that right. time. So it, he, he normalized that kissing and hugging right. because, and after all, I'm thinking kissing's not a sin and this is okay. And he's not hurting me and I'm dating people and doing things with my friends. But once he crossed that line of sexual activity with me, it it totally changed the relationship. He became abusive. He became very, very controlling as to number of friends I could see, what kind of clothes I was to wear. Everything was under his control. That makes sense. So here's, here's my question. Do you believe that first encounter was consensual? The sex or the kiss? The The sexual 
No, it wasn't consensual because I was powerless to, I didn't have the coping skills at the age of 17. I didn't, he had already set me up into this position of trusting him. Um, and, and again, I froze. There was, I didn't know how to respond. So I froze. The reason why I asked that is some would categorize mm-hmm. that as rape. Would you, in your mind, looking back, categorize that as rape? You know, that's a hard question to answer because I don't, I think of rape being more violent. Um, and and it, yeah, I, I don't know that I would call it rape. Okay, that's um, why I'm asking. Because as, yeah. as you're describing and I'm like, so it sounds like, and I'm not putting your words in your mouth, of course, correct me. But it sounds like when I hear that encounter, I'm like, that that sounds like rape. I mean, I wasn't, it wasn't consensual in the sense that I had less power than he did at that point. I certainly didn't have the coping skills to say no to this man. Um, He had already set me up in this position where he knew I wouldn't say no. Um, So yeah, I was, it wasn't a rape in a violent way, but it certainly wasn't consensual in the sense that I wanted it, but I didn't, I didn't know how to stop it. That's tough stuff. Uh, that's he didn't violently sure. hold me down, but emotionally he was holding me at that moment. Yeah, that makes sense too. And and again, every state's different. So and some time has passed, and so some people are probably going to ask now: Is this guy? Is this gentleman? Is he in in jail in any way? Is he? Where is he currently? He's in uh, right now. He's in Tennessee. When I confronted him, I confronted him um, 27 years after the abuse. But he was in Alabama when I confronted him. He was a minister in a church at that time in Alabama. Uh, he's now in Tennessee, and I believe he's semi-retired. But he still remains in good standing within the denomination. Uh, at the time that this abuse occurred, I was 16. In the state of Ohio at that time, age of consent was 16. It has now been moved to 18. But interestingly enough, even though I was 16 and age of consent was 16, if he'd been my teacher, my counselor, or my doctor, it would have been against the law. But it wasn't against the law because he was my pastor. That's still a case in Ohio. It's only 13 states uh, is it against the law for a clergy person to have any kind of sexual relationship with someone under their care? Only 13 states. So in Ohio, it still remains that um, even though the age of consent is 18, if he were to be counseling a woman in his office and took advantage of that position, it's not against the law. If it had been her doctor, it would have been against the law. And those that needs to be changed. Oh, so he never served any... Um, you know, there was never any legal action that I could take um, against him. First of all, the statute of limitations had run out. Uh, also in Ohio, you had to make uh, a claim of child abuse by the time you were 21, which to my mind, I can I can tell you as a victim, first of all, we don't have the financial wherewithal at, by 21 to do that, nor do we have the emotional stability to do that because once that abuse ended, And as most abuse victims will tell you, we just want to forget it. We want to move on. We want to say, thank God it's over. I'm not going to think about this anymore. I'm going to move on with my life. The problem with that is you don't move on with your life because you're still stuck with that abuse haunting you for the rest of your life until you deal with it. No, that's, that's understandable completely. So 
Um, I'm glad we clarified that, and thank you for the the stats on on where legislation needs to change. For my in my mind, and and those listening, that's uh, that's some stuff that we need to fix for sure. Not only in your state, but hopefully nationwide. Make those uh, you know nationwide mandates rather than state to state. But uh, but you mentioned confronting him. What was that like? Can you can you take me to that day? I had a trigger factor, which I describe in chapter one of my book of what set me on my final journal journey of healing, because up until that point, I wasn't telling anyone about it. I was going to keep it a secret. And this trigger factor was such an emotional eruption that I had no choice but to deal with it. Um, so the first thing I did, uh, well, not, it took me a couple of weeks, but then I told a friend um, and I eventually told my husband. And so Once I began to understand that I didn't have an affair with my married pastor, I was sexually abused. And once I understood the terms of grooming and manipulation and gaslighting, and I could see all those things were done to me, I was then able to say, I need to figure out how I'm going to heal from this. And very early on, I decided that I wanted to confront him. Now, I hadn't had any contact with him for 27 years. I didn't even know if he was still alive. I hired a private investigator. He found him in Alabama. And through my investigator, we set up a meeting that I was going to meet with him and confront him. Uh, initially, he didn't want to do that. He gave excuses. Um, but because he realized he didn't have a choice, he eventually agreed to meet me. Um, so I, I took my husband and a good friend. He brought his second wife. His first wife eventually did divorce him. And he had his boss there with him, his supervisor, I guess is what he was. He was an elder in the church. And I, where'd you get, where'd you guys meet at? Like at a coffee shop? Well, that's another interesting story because (laughs) I'm thinking um, like, where does this go down at the Denny's? I mean, well, I wanted to meet at the church. Um, I had a very good friend who was helping me spiritually and guiding me through this. And his feelings were, this is a church matter. Uh, You need to meet at the church. And he absolutely refused that. His supervisor said, we're not meeting the church. We don't want anyone to know about this. Mm-hmm. And I can remember thinking, here we go again with the secrets. Right. We're going to keep this hidden. I, at that point, was still emotionally trying to deal with everything. So for me, my investigator said to me, I think if you force him to say that it has to be at the church, he won't meet you. And I needed that meeting. So I said, all right, he can pick another place and we'll meet there. Interestingly, or ironically, he picked a hotel. So I was, and he picked the same hotel chain as to where he was caught that night. So I, I remember thinking, really? But home court, yeah. home court advantage, I think is that's what that's I, don't I, don't I don't know. I don't know. But so the meeting was held at a lobby in a hotel. I went there with a lot of angst, as you can imagine. My greatest fear was that I would get into that room and I'd be 16 all over again. And that all of the manipulation and all the tools that he used to control me would come back and that I would fall for it. I, I, I knew from things he had told my investigator that he was gonna play the woe is me, I'm the victim here. He talked about all the agonies on his list and how I should feel sorry for him and his life hasn't been easy and that he's had many problems through his life. So I knew that's what he was going to try to do. So I was kind of worried that maybe I wouldn't have the wherewithal to stand up against him. And I didn't really go there to confront him 
to, to wag my finger at him. I, I wanted him to understand what he did to me. And I more than anything wanted to look at him and say, I now understand what you did and you had no right to do that to me. And so once he walked into the room, I just had this calm about me. And I basically sat and said to him the things I wanted to say to him. I gave him a list of about 20 things that I expected him to read, to say that he was wrong. It was wrong when he took my virginity. It was wrong for him to ask me to keep a secret. It was wrong when he allowed the church to disenfranchise me from the church when he was at fault. So there were like 20 things I asked him to read, um, which he did uh, at the end. He said he didn't remember all of these things. He didn't remember hitting me, which I find sad, um, but he read the list and I was finished. I, I had come to confront him. I told him what I needed to say and I was finished. Now, did I feel satisfied? Um, I have to say that I was disappointed that I didn't feel like he really understood what he had done to me. And the fact that he was so unwilling to meet me in the beginning told me this wasn't about helping me heal. It was what he could do to minimize his own damage it may cause for him. How long ago was it that you met him? That was in 2004. Okay. So, so it's been like six uh, years. Two, it's been me? like six years since you've met him. Yeah. Roughly. Uh, yeah, 2004. Yeah. Okay. Um, well, it'll be 16 years actually, right? Oh, 2000, excuse yes. me, 2004. I can't, 2004. I can't do math, mm-hmm. clearly. <laughs> yeah. And, 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 I thought and, you said 2014 and, or something. Oh, 2000, it was 2004. Okay. Um, and that meeting, you know, I, I thought, okay, now I've done this and it's going to be done and over and I'm going to get on with my life. Well, that didn't happen. Um, I found myself still having a lot of trigger factors. I, was, I thought I've still got a lot of healing to go through. And it was through then uh, a ministry that I volunteered for, the Hope of Survivors, that I really found myself being able to help others was really a good part of my healing. And so that started that journey of advocacy um, and working with other victims um, to help them heal, which uh, in the same way helped me heal. Okay, so you meet this guy. You got your entourage, if you will. You got your people. He's got his people. I'm thinking to myself, if I'm a guest in the lobby, hopefully you were in well, like we were a in conference a room. room. Okay, good. All right. I'm, we were in yeah, a conference room. Yeah, I was just going to say, like, yeah. you're walking yeah, by. Yeah, no, it wasn't and, in the lobby. And, yeah. You know, was, yelling. I'm sorry, I shouldn't have said yeah, lobby. Yelling and things like that are going on. They're like, what kind of kind of hotel is this that I'm checking into today? Um, why why on earth would you want to confront him after 27 years? Like, what, what possessed you to even want to first hire somebody that to me was blown away. Like, I'm like, wow, that's to the extreme. Why would you want to go and confront him? What was the purpose? I mean, I know you had your goals and your, your things you wanted him to read and that was important, but, but deep down, was was there another reason? Well, I think it was so that I could take my power back. He had taken away from me so many things. My spiritual life was not the same. He took away my security of how I could trust my own judgment. Um, he, he took away 27 years of peace for me because I was constantly worrying about the secret that I was trying to hide. And I wanted to take my power back. And I, to me, I could do that only if I said to him, you had no right to do what you did to me. And I wanted him to know that, that I finally got it, that I wasn't this person he had controlled all these years. Um, and 
and he was controlling me for 27 years. I mean, the fact that I still thought about him because I was the secret and the trigger factor. So it was about taking my power back um, and being my own person again. Um, but I just, I, and then I, I, I was also encouraged because these friends of mine who were helping me spiritually reminded me of Matthew 18, 20, uh, 18, 15 through 17, you know, to con- confront the one who's offended you. I was also guided by that as well, that this was not only something I needed to do, but it was almost a commandment from God to do. Do you forgive him? I did forgive him. It didn't come easily and it didn't come right away. I, and I would say that I, I had to understand what forgiveness meant. And this is what I would tell victims. It's about unburdening yourself. It's not about no consequences for this man's behavior. Um, I'm very much concerned that he remains in ministry. There should be consequences to this kind of behavior. So forgiveness doesn't mean I forgo consequences. Doesn't mean there shouldn't be justice. It doesn't mean that I remain silent. Uh, he accused me later after the meeting, he called me at my home, which I think is a good indication this man still isn't uh, repentant, nor does he understand what he's done to a victim. He called me at my home accusing me of trying to emotionally blackmail him and that if I really was trying to forgive him, I wouldn't keep talking about this. He was angry at me. You know, forgiveness doesn't mean I don't talk and tell my story. It's my story. He made a decision to be a part of my life. And that's part of who he is in my life. And I can talk about that. Um, So that's what I had to understand what forgiveness, what it was not. And I had to know that forgiveness meant that as much as I wanted a different outcome for all of this, it wasn't going to happen. And so I had to let go of that. Um, So I, I look at forgiveness as just unburdening myself. You know, for 27 years, I carried guilt and shame. And then after I confronted him, I started carrying anger and frustration. So neither one of those were working for me. The guilt and shame for 27 years didn't help me. And now the anger and the frustration that I was feeling, that wasn't going to help me either. So I did forgive him. Um, It's not something I think every victim has to do. No victim should ever be told you should forgive this person. Each victim needs to come to that on their own. Because part of, I think, when we talk about telling a person they need to forgive, the victim sees that as almost a minimization of the trauma they've gone through. Oh, you need to forgive him. But it's almost like being unfaithful to your pain when you let it go too easily. There needs to be a healing process that comes along before you're able to forgive someone. Um, And so I know in, in our Christianity it's based on forgiveness. You know, God sent his son to die for our sins so that we could be forgiven. And so forgiveness is a part of our Christianity, but we need to be careful when we push forgiveness on victims, especially victims of clergy abuse. So here's my question, and I'm not sure how to phrase this, so here we go. Um, I can't think of something, something that somebody could do to me that I would not be able to forgive them for. Okay. And that's the hardest part when I hear your story is I think to myself, forgiveness to me, unforgiveness, let me restate that. Unforgiveness to me feels like drinking poison. One of my classic phrases that I love to say is like drinking poison, thinking somehow it's going to affect the other person. 
right? Correct. I mean, I actually think I use that in my book. <laughs> you, if you don't, next one, you should definitely use that and and not give me credit because I stole from somebody else. No, I, I think I actually have that in the book somewhere. Good. You should because it's good. But my point is, is no. that I'm I, when I when I started hearing your story and we started to get ready for today. I started really thinking back over my lifespan, which is only like 40 something years. So, you know, it's not that long, but I started thinking to myself, is there something that somebody could do to me, to me, my wife, my daughter, whomever, my circle that I would not be able to forgive them for. And I honestly, I could not think of something. Well, you mentioned your daughter earlier and how angry you would be. I would. If, uh, Anger, if, if though, different than forgiveness. Your... So there there we go. So I don't know. Yeah. But speak to that, if you wouldn't mind. Well, you know, again, I think each person has to decide for themselves. And it depends on your support system. I mean, I had a very loving husband. I had great friends. So in a way, it was easier to me for me to forgive this person because I had a lot of people supporting me. And I had a life. I had a, two wonderful children. And for me, I needed to let go of that because he was still controlling me. As long as I didn't forgive him and let go of it, he was still controlling me. And I wanted to live the life I was meant to live, not the one he created in my life 27 years ago. And so as long as I was holding on to that, um, I, I couldn't move forward. And that's the only way I knew to move forward was to let go of it. And holding on to the anger wasn't working for me. It just wasn't working. Um, now, it doesn't mean there's not justifiable anger at times. You know, he took my spiritual life away from me. He took from me. I loved my church. I loved serving God. Prayer was a part of my daily life. I carried my Bible to school with me every single day in high school. It was it was my entire being. And he contaminated all of that for me. I sit in church now and I have trigger factors. I didn't pray for 27 years. 27 years, I never had a prayer. My children never had a bedtime prayer with their mother. And I I will always regret that. And so what he took from me and what, how he changed my spiritual life and damaged it in so many ways, there's some anger there. And I, and Probably I would say it's not as much anger as that I mourn the loss of what I had. I mourn that trust that I had in the church at one time. Now, all of this has gotten better over time in my healing process. I I, I pray now. Um, I read the Bible. I'm not comfortable if someone says to me, well, the Bible says that's a trigger factor for me because I heard scripture from this man for five years while he was sexually abusing me. I watched him have sex with me or have sex with me on a Saturday night and then preach on the sanctity of marriage on a Sunday morning. All of that messes your mind to a point that you can't rationally figure out what's going on in your life and it it impacts your life for the rest of your life and the way you perceive things. Um, So there's a lot of unraveling that is needed to take care of the garbage that was put in. No, I, I hear what you're saying on that. I really do. And, and by the way, I am not sitting in a a seat of judgment here in, here in Oregon. It is not my place at all to sit in a seat of judgment over your story or anyone else's story. I'm just trying to, as I say in the show, I'm really trying to put myself in your place, in your shoes, even if they're high heels, try my best to put those on, right? I'm, I'm trying really hard to do that because again, for me, I can think back to when I was in high school 
and I shared this with you before we started recording, that my journey into ministry started because of someone making a choice very similar to what this gentleman did to you. And so from that standpoint, I can kind of relate there, right? But again, I, I guess... I guess for me, the hard part in is there's a difference between forgiving someone and hating them. There's such a strong difference. And I know we know that in our head, but our heart does not always know that. And I guess that's what I wanted to encourage you in and and really just celebrate with you in is that you were able to do that because there are so many women and I'm maybe being a little sexist here, but I think there are so many women specifically that would say, if they were in your shoes, there's no way I could forgive him, Neil. There's no way I could allow that man ever to be forgiven. In fact, he needs to be this. This needs to happen to him, followed by that, followed by this, followed by, you know, let's put scorpions on him, whatever it may be, you know, who knows. But my point is that to for you to sit here today and say, you know what, I was angry with him, And I carried that for a long time. I couldn't forgive him. There were so many triggers to sit here today and say, you know what? Nope. I have forgiven him. It was a choice to forgive him. And there's the, there's the, it is a choice. There's the key to it, I think. Yeah. And it's not only just a choice, but it's also um, an exercise in discipline in the sense that the moments that I would have those moments of anger, instead of letting them engulf me, I had to step back and say, no, I'm not going to, I'm not going to go there. And, and, and that's, that's not easy to do because the anger is a, a real emotion. And so it's, it's like, you need to almost practice stopping those emotions to say, I'm not going to be angry because the thing about it is, and this goes back to your point of, you know, drinking poison and expecting the other person to die. The days that I spent being angry at him, or I would spend crying in the car because of what was done to me. I wasted two, three hours of that particular day. Do you think he was wasting two or three hours thinking about me? Nope. No, he was going on with his life, living his life, enjoying his life. I was wasting precious time in my life being angry at this person who didn't care that I was upset, who didn't probably give me a second thought. And here I was spending precious time away from the life that I should have been leading. Um, and, And I hope that my story can help others see that there is a path to healing and a path to hope and that you don't have to be angry. It it, it doesn't help to be angry at something you can't change. If my anger would have stopped the abuse and I could go back in time, then, but it doesn't change anything. I had to accept that whatever I wanted to happen was not going to change the outcome of what was done to me. It wasn't going to change that. Um, and he's not worth my time. He's simply not worth. Now, I can I can work toward changing the laws. I can work toward helping churches understand the dynamics of sexual abuse and how it happens in churches and what's the appropriate response. I can tell my story to help other victims, to help others understand. Those are all good things that I can do. But being angry isn't one of those things. Um, and whether people, whether victims want to use the word forgiveness, because that carries a lot of connotations with it. Like I said, everyone has a different view of what forgiveness means. So if you can't say that you forgive them, you're going to unburden yourself from that man, unburden yourself from that past. It will always be a part of you. My abuse will always be 
a part of who I am. It, 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 it's what happened and what was done to me. But it doesn't have to define my life and it doesn't have to control my life. And I, it takes a long time to get there. Healing is a process. It doesn't happen overnight, but it's possible. It is absolutely possible. And I'm here to tell people it's possible. No, I think that's great stuff there. And, uh, and again, I, I love the paradigm there, right? I really do. I love, I love that. So, um, so Sandy, as we wrap up today, I want to, I want to give you an opportunity. Where can people go get the book? Where can they get their hands on it? And, and how can they get in touch with you? Um, so this is my book. Um, it's called, let me pray upon you. It's available on Amazon. And I also have a website, which is my name, uh, a little long, but it's Sandy Phillips Kirkham, K-I-R-K-H-A-N.com. So you can order the book there or you can order it on, on Amazon. Um, and I, I, I think the book is so helpful for victims, but it's also helpful for churches as well as they navigate through this situation of churches when they need to, to address it. Um, there's a lot of good information there, I think, that would be helpful to church leaders as well as victims. And we, of course, have linked that on our website as well. So if you're wondering how to get there, if that was maybe too long to write down at the moment, just remember, go to our website, OPSpodcast.com, look under Books I Love, and you will see it right towards the top of the page there. You can't miss it. And uh, and Sandy has been amazing today. So Sandy, uh, just want to play one last thing with you, if you're okay. We usually end our sure. show with a game. And I know we've been very serious today and, and very, not really fun, because this isn't a fun topic, but it right. is a freeing topic, which to me, freedom does lend to fun. So I don't know. It does. There's a very, very thin bridge that we're on there i don't know but but we play this game called senseless so i wanted to play it with you so here you go you're okay you're in uh ohio and i'm in oregon so i'm gonna roll here's our amazing north carolina cup and so this is a great (laughs) question for you i don't know how this works i really don't but generally the dice somehow knows what we've been talking about this is so weird okay i'm not into like spiritual mystic things and things like that because i'm not but I do think it's amazing how it works out. So this is our dice, and you got a number one. So there it is. Hopefully you can see that, maybe. Number one. Okay. okay. So this is it. And so these are the, the six questions we ask. Six is the wild card. We have five senses, as you know. So interesting, again, that you got a number one, because here's the number one's question. <laughs> and it says this. It says, how do you want others to see you? See, again, I didn't pick it, but you did. You rolled it, and somehow the die knew that you had to answer this question. I would like someone, people to see me as someone who has overcome adversity and has come out on the other side helping others. Yeah, because I think that's important, right? Because if we were running into each other in the airport or maybe we're, I don't know, if you fly first class, I don't often fly first class, but I have a few times. But I imagine like we're sitting you know, next to each other on the airplane and before you get your AirPods in and I get my, you know, maybe Beats on and you grab your latest book that you're either writing or working on or whatever that we look at each other. And like, what do you think the first thing I would notice about you would be? I think you would think I was confident whether I am at that moment or not, but I, I think I, um, I would not be confident because I don't fly well. So I'm glad you would have that for the both of us. Okay. I think you'd think I was confident. Okay. 
but I have a manner about me that seems like I've, I'm, I've got my act together and I'm a confident person. Awesome. I love that. Um, that is actually, uh, that is true. And in fact, before I even met you, I actually thought that I thought, man, this lady is confident. That is actually a word I used because I thought who can come on and tell a story that is so horrific as yours and still through it all, not that you're laughing or making light of your life, but to still put a smile on every day and say, you know what? I'm going to get up today and I'm going to give it my best because somebody out there needs to hear this message and be changed by it. Wouldn't you agree? I do agree with that. And it, like I said, it took me a while to get to that point, but I, I, I learned and I, and I think you would agree with this. Our stories are important, whether they're minor stories or big stories, sharing our stories with each other is important because each of us needs to be supported by each other's stories and their experiences. For sure. Absolutely. I couldn't have said it better myself. So guys, go check out the book now. It of course is available at our website, opspodcast.com under books. I love right towards the top, as I mentioned just moments ago. So if you're wondering about that, go check that out. And I apparently am going to get my own copy. So I'm excited about that. So if you're really nice to me, maybe, maybe I would give you my copy. Probably not though, because I like to keep books and I'm excited when we have books and authors that come on. So Sandy, thank you again for coming on. We really appreciate it. Well, thank you. I've, I've enjoyed it. And it's um, been a pleasure to be here. You're an excellent host. And uh, I do hope that um, the book is a help to someone out there. And again, my website, they, there's a lot of good information for victims who might want to just even uh, learn a little bit more and be a help to them. So absolutely, Sandy, it is our pleasure and my pleasure to have you on today. Thank you for sharing your story. And if you are interested in learning more about Sandy's story, getting a copy of her book in your hands, let me pray upon you. You, of course, can check out our website under Books I Love under OPSPodcast.com. That, of course, is where you can get yourself a copy of Sandy's book. And, of course, all of her resources, website information will be in our show notes. So please take a look at that. And just remember, when you walk in other people's shoes, you really do get a different perspective on life. Thank you so much and stay tuned till next week when we walk in other people's shoes. Thank you again for joining us on Other People's Shoes. As you know, I'm your host, Neil Matthews. I want to say thank you again to our guest, Sandy, for coming on and sharing her horrific story of what has happened to her. I got to be honest with you. When I first came across Sandy's story, I had so many questions. And we could have probably gone a whole lot longer in our interview today because there was just so much to unpack with her life. So I do encourage you, get a copy of her book, get more into her story because there is so much more that we couldn't even cover that she gets into in her book. So please, of course, do that. OPSpodcast.com under Books I Love should be right towards the top. You'll see it there. And uh, just super excited to get that into your hands to not only help you, but hopefully educate those around you about the dangers and those that are lurking, as she alluded to, the wolf in sheep's clothing. So just want to call that to your attention. Speaking of calling things to your attention, stay tuned till next week as we sit down with a very new friend who has a very similar show as I do. He, of course, is the host of the follow-up question, and I cannot wait to share this episode. In fact, here's a little sneak preview of next week's guest. It was, oh gosh, it was amazing. Like just... To, to have that experience with my son, um, to, to guide him, to, to tell him what to do and to make sure like, how are you feeling? If you feel this way, let's stop. Like, you know, or, or the opposite. Hey, 
let's not take a break yet. Let's push through this. I know your legs are burning right now, but there's a point up here where the trail gets a little bit easier. Let's make it there and let's let's walk. Let's work through this tough time. And dude, like the people coming up, the, coming down the mountains are like high fiving him and just be like, oh, bud, like great job, man. And he's you just the smile on his face. It, it just fills a father's heart, man. It, it really does. And, and the ability to. That's right. We're going to go out to Colorado. So pack your hoodie, pack your hiking shoes. We're going to go on to a mountaintop experience with my new friend, brand new guest, and super excited to share that episode with you. And I can't wait till that happens. So join us right back here next Wednesday. That, of course, is when all this takes place again. OPSpodcast.com is, of course, the place to go for past, present, and future episodes. While you're on the website, of course, leave a voicemail there. Love to get some feedback from you on what you love, what you hate. You know, even the haters, you're welcome to leave some feedback. And, of course, if you'd like to like us, follow us, tweet us, that can all be done at OPS Podcast Show. That is our Twitter, Facebook, and Instagram name. And just, of course, remember this before I let you go. Remember, when you walk in other people's shoes, you really do get a different perspective on life. Join me right back here next week as I walk in other people's shoes.